Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Well, let's uh, open up our Bibles. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, and I certainly hope you do, then uh, we're going to open up together into the Gospel of Luke. As I mentioned before, in this new series, we're really going to be uh, following Jesus' last steps as uh, he begins to walk to the cross. And this morning, we're in the upper room, the upstairs room that Jesus has arranged to eat his last Passover meal with his disciples. And uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 24. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, then reach inside. And even if you did, because you may want to follow along and complete the fill-ins and grab out your crosswalk notes, you'll find those inside your program folder. Here's what it says. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Who here has been to either Disneyland or Disney World? Have you been to Disneyland, Disney World, most of you? Right? Remember your first trip to Disneyland? What was your favorite ride? You know, I, I, I had a lot of really fun rides, but absolutely my favorite ride the very first time I went with my dad, which is a huge memory, my dad taking my sister and me, was Pirates of the Caribbean. I love that ride. And now, of course, uh, one of my favorite memories is uh, taking Julie, the two of us going out and watching the movies Pirates of the Caribbean. In fact, this is such uh, an important moment in my life that I decided that for today's message, I've just got to show you a clip from the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. So Gwen, will you roll that clip? So who's captain? Isn't that a big question in our world today? Who's captain? It's not just Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, if you... Uh, if you watch popular culture, who's the captain of late night? Is it Leno or is it Conan? One of the, uh, one of the first guests, apparently, that uh, Leno's going to have on when he starts his show again Monday night uh, after the Olympics end is going to be a gentleman named Brett Favre. Who's the captain of the Packers, right? Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre? Even the Olympics themselves featured this, uh, this big argument. Remember Evgeny Plushenko, who landed a quadruple jump and for his efforts got a silver medal? And the American who won the gold medal, he said, did not deserve that gold medal. In fact, on, on Plushenko's website, 
he posted a platinum medal and said, this is what I really deserve. I, I have my own special medal that I've bestowed upon myself, a platinum medal. Who's captain? And I think it's not just a question in popular culture. It's a, it's a question that goes on in our own lives, too. When my kids were teenagers, man, I remember we'd stroll out to the car in the morning and a wave of teenagers would come and bowl me over. Why? Because who gets, can you complete the question? Shotgun. Who gets shotgun? Whew, I nearly died several times in that wave of kids struggling for a shotgun. Is there five kids? I had five kids. Why did I do that? I don't know. <laughs> a wave of them struggling for the shotgun seat. You know, and it, it's, it's between husbands and wives. It's between the guy in the cubicle next to me and me. It's all over. Who's the real captain. Who's the king, right? Well, that's what we want to talk about today because there's a reason why that who's the king and who's the captain struggle goes on all around us. And quite honestly, sometimes I think we all get a little tired of it, don't we? Don't we sometimes get a little tired of the person next to us just wanting to get one up on us? Don't we ourselves sometimes get tired of the struggle to, to get one up on someone else, to be noticed? We get tired of even the things that, that happen to us because of all that, missing the promotions and all these things that, man, it's a world of who gets to be king of the hill. And if we play that king of the hill game long enough, it gets exhausting. It really does. And so this morning, I want to raise this question with you. Is there a way to step outside of the game? Is there a way to stop playing king of the hill, really know for sure who I am, where I'm going, and not have to worry about that stuff anymore. And I believe that the answer is there for us. I believe Jesus has given us the answer in his walk to the cross. As I mentioned before, this, this series is called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, His Pain, Our Gain. And, and through Jesus' willingness to be a servant, to not be king of the hill, but to be under the hill, to, to play the game of not one-upsmanship, but wonder one-undersmanship, that he gave us a gain that, that we can't even truly imagine, and it's truly life-changing in the, in the present and eternity-changing after this life. So let's dig into the story a little bit deeper and let's take a look at what Jesus is doing here. You know, Jesus is confronting his own disciples about their king of the hill mentality, isn't he? Take a look at this. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you, he says, are not to be like that. And why does he say those words? We'll go back to the very first verse. Also, it says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. 
Here are these guys that have been following Jesus, the greatest servant who ever lived for three years. And what are they fighting about? Which of us is considered, that's, that's an important word, do people think is the greatest of the disciples? Wow. Now, you know how ironic this, this little battle is amongst the disciples? Let me just tell you what's happened on this day before they get to this little dispute. In the morning, Jesus has told his disciples, look, tonight we're going to celebrate the Passover. And so he sends Peter and John out and he says, he predicts exactly what's going to happen to them. He says, as you go out, you go into town, you're going to meet a guy carrying a jar of water on, your, on his head. Now, that's unusual because in this culture at this time, it was rare to see a man carrying a jar of water. Getting the water from the well was woman's work. And so right there, that was something that was just kind of, hmm, really? And then he says, talk to this guy, and he's going to offer you a room in his house, and you're going to go up there, and you're going to find it's all, it's all completely furnished for us to come and have our dinner in. Guess what? Every one of those things that Jesus predicted happened exactly as he told Peter and John that they would. Now, that's got to have you thinking if you're a disciple, right? So then that night they get in, they're celebrating this meal, and Jesus reveals to them again, not the first time, but he reveals to them again, look, I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to die just as the prophecy has said that I'm going to. And you guys need to be ready for this. And then after that, Luke tells us, if you read in, in Luke chapter 22, he offers them the very first communion or Lord's Supper. Now, it's called communion because God supernaturally through communion communes with us and leads us to commune with one another to become more unified more unified and one, all right? And apparently from this account, it's right after that that these disciples go, so, which one of us is the greatest? Truly ironic. They've seen miraculous things that day. They've celebrated the Passover, which is all about freedom. They've celebrated the first Holy Communion, which is all about togetherness, and now they're fighting over who's the greatest. What does that tell you? Does that not make it solidly concrete how powerful this king of the hill mentality is? Does it not make rock solid in your mind how much we're going to have to fight in order to beat down this mentality that says, I got to be ahead of others. I got to be king of the hill. And that's exactly what Jesus is con con confronting here. Take a look in your crosswalk notes. I want you to do the first fill in. Here's why this is, is so hard to beat. Because to our natural self, to our sinful nature, self is king. To our natural self, it's all about me. And this is something that, as we mentioned in the confession, 
Confessing our sins is all about getting to the point where we agree with God about what's going on inside of ourselves. And we agree with God about the fact that we fall short and that there is a selfish, sinful nature at work within us. So let me ask you this first question. Do you? Do you agree with God that this is a struggle for you just as it was for these early disciples? Are you able to get to the point where in our weekly confession or perhaps in your own private daily confession, you could raise your hand and say, God, yep, me too. I'm infected with this selfish, I'm the king mentality, this one-upsmanship, this desire to be king of the hill. Would you agree with what this quote says that, that I put down here? Let's look at it. Daniel Deutschlander wrote an awesome book called The Theology of the Cross. I'm going to recommend that you pick it up later. But look at this quote. By nature, that is by birth, we fear anything disagreeable to our own will, be it the effort involved in surrendering it or the ridicule of the world when we do surrender it. By nature, we love self most of all and before anyone or anything else. By nature, we trust our own will, our own cleverness, our own instincts, our own selfish and often very twisted definition of right and wrong. What suits me and is convenient is right. Anything else is wrong. Now that's quite, quite an indictment. Very, very tough words to face up to, to be able to raise our hands and say, you know what, I, I don't like admitting it, I'm ashamed to admit it, but that describes my natural self. Paul confronts that in his letter to the Philippians when he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What's natural for us? Selfish ambition. Vain conceit. And so Paul says, don't do what's natural. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. When we look at these 12, these disciples, one of whom was so filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit that he literally sold the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. What's our attitude? Are we ready to confront ourselves? Or is it just convenient to say, how dumb are these guys? See, that's the temptation to look at those disciples and go, I could have never done that. I would have never. And that's exactly what Peter says right after this. Jesus says, you're going to betray me. Peter says, Lord, I will never betray you. That's not me. Guess what? He doesn't betray him, but he denies him three times, just as Jesus has predicted that he would deny him three times, even though he thought he wouldn't. Right? So here's point number one. 
Jesus calls me to acknowledge, to confront my selfish king of the hill ambition. Jesus calls me to confront my selfish king of the hill ambition. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we fight this? And that's what Jesus is going to go on and, and talk about. Because as we saw, he already showed us that with the disciples, he wasn't, he wasn't just going to let it slide. He goes right to the point. Now it's gentle and, and beautiful because he's so gentle here, but it's also rapid. He comes urgently to the, to the point and he says, guys, what, what are you doing? And Jesus knows he has to come urgently to the situation because it's not only their sinful nature at work here. Our sinful nature has allies. Did you know that? There's the worldly, sin-filled ideas and deceptions of the world around us that will support our sinful nature in saying, hey, you're number one. It is all about you. And don't forget that. If you let it be about others, you're going down. That's the worldly logic that is going to be thrown at you to support your sinful nature. Satan himself is going to tell you lies about this. In fact, that's what he loves to do. And he's shown it from the beginning. He loves to spread his lies and deceptions about how you need to be number one. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What was Satan's argument with Eve? You don't want God to be number one, do you? You don't want God to know more and be higher than you? Eat the fruit, girl. Eat the fruit. Because then when you eat the fruit, you're going to be number one right alongside of God. You'll know everything and you'll be like him. Don't you want that? Think about Cain and Abel. Who's number one among the brothers? Who's offered the better sacrifice? And one gets angry because his sacrifice is not accepted as fully because he hasn't done what Abel did. Go fast forward throughout the entire New Testament. Abraham and his two wives, Sarah and Hagar, struggling for who's number one in the house, right? What was that guy doing with two wives anyway? That's craziness. But he did. And as soon as he had two wives, man, who's queen of the household, right? David and Saul. Saul was out to kill David to preserve his king of the hill position in the kingdom. Why? All because Satan is constantly yapping in our ear and saying to us, lying to us, that we have to be number one. We have to be king of the hill, and it's up to us to protect our king of the hill position. And that's what makes God's grace so amazing. Because look at what Jesus does when the disciples start to listen to the same deception. Look at what he does here. It's it's beautiful, and it's amazing. Because Jesus says to them, You are not to be like that. Verse 26. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. He lays out this example. You're at dinner, right? Who's the greatest person in the room when you're sitting at the table? Is it the person sitting at the table or is it the servant, right? And he says, clearly, it's the person sitting down. The servant is considered the servant. But now, in this twist, he says, where am I in this picture? I'm not at the table. I am among you as one who serves. And in that Jesus gives us the amazing answer. He says, this is how we act around my kingdom. And he reminds them that that sort of selfish, self-centered way of doing things is not the way it's done in the king's house. In the king's house, the elder acts as if he deserves nothing better than the younger. The one in authority acts as if he's the slave of all. The one who has perfect freedom puts himself underneath the authority of others. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Man, when you look at how Jesus loves these disciples with an undeserved love and says, I've come to serve you. You know, this night when he served that Passover meal, he wanted this picture to be so firmly fixed in their mind that he, he takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the disciples' feet so they have a concrete picture in their mind for the rest of their lives about what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. And why did Jesus do that? Because he wanted you to be confident about something. You know what causes us to strive so often? Is because we're not very sure of ourselves. We don't have the confidence that God wants us to have. We don't have that assurance that he wants to give to us. And so we think, in essence, I've got to prove myself. I've got to show others. Remember the disciples' debate? Who do others consider to be the greatest among us? So I've got to prove myself in my world through how much I make, through what my title is. And you know what Jesus says to them, to these disciples? He says, stop. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. Look at what he says. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink in my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Think about that. Because what Jesus is saying to these disciples, he's saying to you, I confer on you a kingdom. And that word confer literally means I write you up in my will. 
Jesus told him, I'm dying, right? But you're already in the will. I've put you in my will to inherit a kingdom. And he says that to you. Guess what? You can write this down in your crosswalk notes. You can say, I already am a king in the sight of God. Look at what Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also, you can underline this word, reign with him. You already are king of the hill in God's eyes. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to earn it. Jesus gave it to you from his free grace, his forgiveness. And how did that happen? How did you get to be top of the heap? One simple reason, Jesus went to the bottom of the heap for you. When Jesus says, I am among you as a servant, he says, I'm going to go to the bottom of the heap for you. The heap of your sins, the heap of your hurt, the heap of your shame and your guilt, the heap of all the things that have gone on in your life that have threatened to destroy and demolish your heart and your spirit, Jesus says, bring it all on me. And I'm going to put myself underneath it on the cross. And I want you to know that as I'm here at the bottom of the heap, you rise to the top of the heap through faith in me. That's the beauty of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That Jesus didn't do any of this to put himself at the top of the heap. He did it all to put you and me in his love at the top of the heap. So here's really a huge key. These are really the keys of the kingdom. Is to just trust that because Jesus went underneath the heap of our sins, guilt, shame, hurt, pain. We now already know for sure we are kings of the hill. Here's our second point. Jesus calls me to embrace today, to comprehend my current king of the hill situation. You are already situated at the, at the top of the hill. Comprehend it, embrace it, know it beyond any shadow of a doubt. Now, I've been talking a lot about grace, God's attitude toward you and me, an attitude of love, an attitude that you and I did nothing to earn or deserve. You know how undeserved God's love is? I was uh, reading an article recently about how even our king of the hill mentality can, can be seen in an ER room. Now, listen to a couple of these quotes from an ER nurse and an ER doctor. They're kind of interesting that even when we're really sick or really injured, we can still show this king of the hill mentality. One ER nurse says, arriving by ambulance doesn't mean you're going to get a red carpet escort into the ER. You're going to get treated like everyone else, and if you're not that sick or injured, you're going to wait. Now, what does that tell you about most of the people coming into the ER? A doctor says, 
Get rid of your entitlement mentality. It's bad in general life, that entitlement mentality, but it's really bad when you arrive at the ER. Now, why do I bring those examples back up? Simply to show by contrast that Christ's love covers even that. The fact that we could even be injured, hurting, really sick, and still have the king of the hill mentality. God's love is so big and so amazing that he could cover these disciples, even though in an instant after seeing all these amazing, amazing things that Jesus had done, they start talking about who's, who's king of the hill among us. And when we do the same thing, when we act the same way, I want you to be confident that God's love and mercy and grace covers you. And it really does. And when we say, you notice in these points, every one of them I've started with, Jesus calls me. That's important. And I put it down on your crosswalk notes. When we say that Jesus calls us, we understand this to mean God's powerful and effective gospel call. Jesus is out to get you with his love, with his mercy and forgiveness. He's coming after you, and he's going to be with you. If you read right after this account that we're reading today about this dispute among the disciples, you see Jesus turn to Peter, and he says to Peter, Look, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I've prayed for you. And when you turn around... After you've denied me three times, teach others about my love and my mercy. Now now think about those words of Jesus to Peter, how positive they are. I'm right here with you, Peter. I know Satan is going to sift you like wheat, but I'm with you. I'm praying for you. And I'm confident that by my mercy and grace and power, you're going to make it through. And you're going to teach others how to make it through. Is that not amazing? And that's the kind of love and mercy and power that God has for you. When we say that this gospel call, this gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, that that's the keys of the kingdom, we mean that. It is. It's when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's when we enter God's eternal kingdom and become kings. But God's gospel message to us is not just the keys to the kingdom. It's also, and this is part of the gospel too, the key to the kingdom lifestyle. When I know that I'm loved, solidly, firmly, faithfully loved by God in Jesus Christ, when I stand strong in that, I don't have to ask myself anymore what I need to do to prove myself. I'm already a proven commodity to God in Jesus I don't have to ask myself, where am I going in life? What's, what's my end outcome going to be? What's my destiny? Jesus has already told me my destiny. I confer on you an eternal kingdom. And when I'm rock solid and confident in that, guess what? That becomes the key to the kingdom lifestyle. Why could Jesus go underneath the heap? Because he was absolutely confident in his father's love. 
He says, I and the Father are one. What makes it possible for you to go under the heap like Jesus for others, for your spouse, for your kids, for the guy whom on occasion you're tempted to call the jerk in the cubicle next to you? What makes it possible for you to go under the heap for him? That gospel message that tells you that you are loved beyond any shadow of a doubt, that God will never stop loving you, that he sent his son Jesus for you to adopt you as his child. And as his child, you have an inheritance already arranged for you, an eternal kingdom in heaven. I want you to be confident of that, not only so that you can know your eternal outcome, but so that you can have the key to the kingdom lifestyle, which is a lifestyle of service, helping others, being willing to stop going to the king of the hill and be willing to go and be in the middle, maybe even at the bottom of the heap. Take a look at what I put in your crosswalk notes because it shows how clearly the gospel leads to this kingdom lifestyle. Remember that first passage I read, Philippians 2, 3, and 4? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I left some stuff out. Look at what's wrapped around that passage. This is the couple verses before it and the couple verses after it. Look for the gospel in here. And do you see it? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, you're united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, you have his love. If any fellowship with the Spirit, he sends his Holy Spirit into your hearts. If any tenderness and compassion, if you believe my promises of love for you, in short, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Live the kingdom lifestyle. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That powerful effective gospel call is everywhere in these passages. And around it, surrounding that, stop the vain conceit and the selfish ambition is pure confidence that God loves you, forgives you, and confers on you a kingdom. So here's our third and final point. Jesus, based on this gospel call, calls me to impersonate my Savior's King of the Hill mentality and activity to live the kingdom lifestyle. Can you imagine no more gold medal disputes in our world? Or no one trying to figure out who's the king or the captain of late night? Or no more disputes over who gets to be quarterback. Can you imagine no more of that in your own home or at your place of work? 
It's not going to happen perfectly in this life because we still have sin around us. But guess what? You and I, we can begin to live the kingdom lifestyle in our world, powered by those gospel promises and our certainty of God's love for us in Christ. And we can be like a little virus out there, a kingdom lifestyle virus that walks around with the confidence that we truly in Christ are kings. That's what Jesus wants you to go home with today, to know that Jesus says to you, just as he said to his first disciples, I confer on you a kingdom. You already are kings, and you have an eternal kingdom and the ability to live the kingdom lifestyle now. Take a look at your uh, next steps. I want to recommend, this is a great book called The Theology of the Cross. Now, I'll admit it's, it's pretty dense, but it's great reading. And man, you will be well-educated about the kingdom lifestyle if you read The Theology of the Cross by Daniel Deutschlander. You can find the author's uh, name on the, um, on the front side of your crosswalk notes. Next, if you, if you want to learn here at Crosswalk about how to live the kingdom lifestyle and, and adopt the servant mentality that Jesus is talking about, the class that we do that in is 401 class. If you've gone through 101, 201, and 301, then let me encourage you to make a next step to enroll in the next 401 class, which will start in May. And uh, you can indicate your interest today if you want, and we'll put you on a list. If you haven't progressed through 101, 201, and 301, then let, let me just uh, give you an encouragement to learn more about our, our church and about the basics about God in 101, to, to learn more about our church's teachings as a whole in 201, and then to learn more uh, about how to practice your Christianity in 301. Sign up for one of those classes based on where you are. And finally, meditate on and memorize 2 Timothy 2.11. I just love that passage. Remember what it says? If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's God's promise to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you brought us here today to restore our confidence that we have gained a kingdom. Your blood, your sweat, your tears, as you went to the cross for us, have gained for us this unbelievable, unbelievable confidence that you love us and that you've actually put us in your will and assigned an eternal kingdom to our name. Wow. Lord, Make every heart and mind in this room confident today that they are truly kings in your sight, despite our sins, which we, we readily acknowledge. Despite all the things that make us feel guilty and ashamed, sweep those out of the way by your mercy and grace, Lord. We don't deserve your love, but you love us anyway. And then restore confidence that we can walk with our head held high, no more striving, no more trying to, to push ourselves forward to be king of the hill because we truly are already in your sight, kings. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.